I want to ask Pastor Ralph to come to come up. Shelf, I thought it was perfect. Cut the angle just right, uh, dovetail it together. I looked at it as that was awesome. I took it upstairs and put it up to the wall. One problem. I had made that 90 degree angle perfect. The wall was not 90 degrees. Thus began the the long running saga of this old house because. <laughs> Very few of the walls in our, room, in our house are exactly 90 degrees, I found out. Finding out the hard way. We approach life like this sometimes. Our idea of right doesn't always jive with reality. In fact, to take it a step further, see, we try to, fit our, to force our finite version of a neatly packaged life into the broader plan that God has for us. And so we pray. And then we pray some more. And then sometimes we give up, or we blame God, or even say, it must be our lack of faith. There may be another reason. And as we look at the passage today, I want you to turn to Luke chapter 22, and I'm going to be spending the time in verses 39 through 46. You're going to find something about that in Jesus' prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. These few verses represent a very short time span in Jesus' life. may have been just a few hours or it may have been all night. But either way, it's just a few statements that we're going to look at today. 
They are shortly before Jesus' arrest, his trial, and his crucifixion. But it's a very significant part because it's coming up to a point in history, very, very significant point in history, prepared in eternity past up until this point that God had appointed. Jesus' life on earth, his 33 short years, was about to have its pinnacle. In today's terms, Jesus' short-term missions trip was coming to an end. Or, if we rather say it another way, his discipleship program for his disciples was coming to an end. Now, see, the disciples didn't know what was coming next. We do. We read the rest of the story. So we know what's ahead. They did not. Like, just like none of us can predict the outcome of this afternoon's some football game. Now, some of us claim to be able to predict that. I understand that. But the disciples did not know the outcome of the next few hours, which are going to be rather intense and practical probably the most intense of their entire lives. So much had been leading up to this point. Think about it. This, is, this took place, these few verses, on a Thursday. Prior to that was a Sunday. A Sunday when Jesus entered Jerusalem and they laid out, uh, they, they used palm branches, they waved them around, they put them on a donkey. We call it triumphal entry. We celebrate this on Palm Sunday. That was the Sunday. And then in the days preceding that, he had spent an enormous amount of time in the temple. Uh, debating and talking with the Pharisees and, and the, the rulers of, of um, the Jews at that time. So he had been spending that time in the temple and in the evening going to often either to Bethany or to the Mount of Olives and spending the night there. So here he is up to Thursday night and we know that this Thursday night was the night of the Passover. And Jesus wanted to celebrate it, not with all the crowds that had been following him for all those years. He wanted to celebrate it with just his disciples. So he told them the room. He already knew the room that was supposed to be arranged for them and said, find that room. It's just going to be you and me. We're going to be up there and and celebrate the Passover together. Passover was a significant. It wasn't just a meal. Oh, it, It was a very, very significant part of the Jewish calendar. And he was celebrating with his disciples. So a lot of pack, we, we read just these few verses here, but there's a lot that goes into it. Think about the, um, the Passover meal. First, there was, I mean, there was Jesus going around and washing the disciples' feet, you know, something a servant would normally do. And then he went around and, and did what, what we would today call communion. He passed the cup, he passed the bread, said, this is my body, uh, do this in remembrance of me. And then he spent some time telling them, at least attempting to, what it was going to be like. And then he prayed. You look at all of John chapter 13, 14, 15, 16, 17. Those five chapters took place in the upper room. Quite a long time that Jesus spent with them because that, he knew that was the last time he'd be able to have them together. And rather than going out there and working more miracles, he wanted to spend this intensive time with just his disciples. So after that, after the, if you were to read, which I think is a good idea when you look at the context, you look at the other Gospels, you read John chapter, four, John chapter 13 all the way through 17, and at the end, they sang a hymn, and it says they went out, and they followed Jesus. So they finished their dinner, they sang a hymn, they're in an upper room, they probably went single file down the stairs, out the door, down through the narrow streets, it's probably dark, probably quiet at this point, left Jerusalem, went outside of the gate of Jerusalem, down a little valley, and up a hill, probably not more than ten minutes, to get to the garden. And this is where they would spend the night. Probably cooler in the evening, Jesus with just his disciples. And as he went, now we picture this tiny little garden, but it was not. It was a large garden. 
he said to the eight disciples, remember at this point Judas had already left and was busy on his own doing something else, said to eight of the disciples, stay here, and then he told Peter, James, and John, come with me. Very, very intense, painful part for Jesus. He wanted his three disciples with him. See, Jesus could probably have said no at this point. This is an extremely vulnerable point in his life. But it was an important teaching moment for his disciples to be able to eavesdrop on a deeply personal conversation within the Godhead. He was vulnerable enough that his sorrow was evident. And he tells them to pray. He he tells them to pray so that they will not enter into temptation. He states it twice in this passage. He states it three times, according to both Matthew and Mark. It's the same instruction. We'll talk more about the instruction in a moment. I want to uh, talk more about the occasion right now. See, on prior occasions, there had been attempts to kill Jesus that had not worked out for the Pharisees. This one, Jesus knew was it. They were going to come for him. And so he prayed. Now, John had recorded in, a, in much detail a very intimate conversation Jesus had with his father in John 17. He was praying for the well-being of the precious lives that God had entrusted to him. Keep in mind that this was a brand new, this was coming to a brand new era. Previously, the Jewish people, as they addressed God, would need to bring an animal for sacrifice and involve the priest as well. We're coming to a point in history where that would no longer be necessary. It was hard for the disciples to envision this. And here was Jesus doing his teaching by modeling it for him, for them. This was a very different prayer. It was more direct, it was brief. And quite frankly, at the time, those who were listening may or may not have fully understood why he was praying these words. He first said, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. When he referenced the cup, some things might have been running through the disciples' minds because you see in the Old Testament, the cup is referred to as God's wrath. And when he referenced the cup, that's undoubtedly what went through their minds. You look, there are numerous references to that. Let me read one of them. Psalm 75, verse 8. For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it, on all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. See, the cup throughout Scripture, both Old Testament and New Testament, it signifies God's wrath. And so Jesus is saying, if it is possible, this, this taking on of mankind's sin and the resulting wrath of God, if this is possible, can it be removed from me? Now Luke also Uh, Being the physician that he is, records two additional things that both Matthew and Mark do not. In verses 43 and 44, Luke records an angel and records that sweat came like great drops of blood. Verse 43, and there appeared to him an angel from heaven strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. There is a verifiable condition that I'm aware of, I've only read about, I'm not a doctor, called hematidrosis. And it's a mixing of the blood and sweat that comes from the glands under extreme distress. Point is, there is no question about the extreme agony 
that Jesus was undergoing. It was a vivid portrayal of both the humanity and the divinity of Jesus. He was human. The rest of the context following that, if we were to go on past verse 46, is almost immediately after his last prayer and his last instruction to his disciples saying, pray, watch and pray, Judas shows up. So this was imminent. Jesus knew. These were the last words he had. Right up until the point, as he was praying, Judas comes, looking for his, hoping for that 30 pieces of silver, betrays Jesus with a kiss, and the leaders of the Jews arrest him. That's an overview of the occasion, just to give an idea of, of the context. I want to look at a couple things in here. One, I want to look at the instruction that Jesus gives regarding prayer. And then I want to spend time looking at his example, what he actually prayed. The instructions were, watch and pray. Pray that you may not enter in temptation. He says it twice. That is significant. Anytime we see something like that, we need to take note. There is something significant there. Watch and pray so that you will not enter into temptation. Last week, Eric spoke about the where and the when and even the why of Jesus' prayers. Here's something that says about the what, what to pray. Almost sounds like the Lord's Prayer in Matthew chapter 6, where he says, lead us not into temptation. Well, what temptation? No specific sin is mentioned here. So we say tempted to, to do what? Well, first of all, it can apply to any sin. God is grieved by sin in our lives, and those who have engaged in patterns of sin feel trapped and weak in the face of temptation. So we pray that we don't enter into temptation. Let me make a note here, parenthesis, if I could. Remember that this prayer is a prayer for someone who is a believer, someone who has chosen to follow Christ. Never want to assume that as we gather here in this building each Sunday, that all of us, 100%, have come to that point. Because if you have not, the first step is a prayer that goes something like this. God, I recognize you are holy. I recognize that I'm a sinner. I recognize there's absolutely no way that I can come into your presence because of your holiness. However, I recognize that you sent Jesus, your son, to die in my place and take the punishment for my sins. That prayer is absolutely necessary. And if you have not done that today, I invite you to do that today. And remember that this prayer that we're talking about here is for believers, praying that we won't fall into temptation. You know, and although there is no specific sin mentioned, I believe that the weakness of the flesh, which both Matthew and Mark describe in the occasion, it could mean the doubt and fear and the disciples acting on both. See, immediately they, they forsook Jesus and fled, and then Peter denied even knowing them. So it's possible that this temptation was Jesus saying, you're going to be tempted to deny me. It's possible. We could be tempted, I could say this almost daily perhaps, to discount God. Oh, not just ver- not verbally and not, not knowingly perhaps, but the reality of our salvation, his sovereign rule over our lives, there's too much of this life that we have to take care of. We're often too busy for God. We don't realize that he wants very much to be a part of every aspect of our lives. We're tempted to push him out and segment him to this Sunday morning. I'll see you again next Sunday, Lord. Or perhaps that devotional on the radio we heard this week. That's the temptation to pray against. Pray that we will not deny him in that way. Entering into temptation is a choice of the mind, the will, and the emotions. New Testament uses a number of words. In Matthew 6 and Luke 4, it's be led into. 
And Paul in 1 Corinthians 10, uh, 10.13 says, no temptation has seized you. Either way, it's a choice that we make on our own. I think, unfortunately, and get this, unfortunately, when we yield to temptation and sin, the phrase, it wasn't my fault, isn't just a poor excuse, folks. It's deceptive. It's meant to deceive others. It's sometimes so effective that we actually deceive ourselves, but it never, never deceives God. And for some, sadly, it becomes such a deeply ingrained pattern that this deception becomes the norm. It's not my fault. I couldn't help myself. We look for blame anywhere but where it belongs. So why pray this? Jesus knew the disciples' weaknesses. Having spent three years with them, he knew their hearts. And he knew that the connection that he had with them, something that we call fellowship, was of utmost importance in the light of the events of the next few days. There's going to be abandonment when it wasn't popular to be one of those Jesus followers. But then the disciples overheard Jesus' own prayer. I looked at the occasion. I looked looked briefly at the instruction that Jesus gave them. Let's look at his example in verse 42. This is what he prayed. Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Matthew says that Jesus began to be sorrowful and troubled. When he did that, he went straight to his father. Prayer is both the disciplined and the spontaneous engagement of the mind, will, and emotions in communion with my heavenly father. Being in communion with my Heavenly Father means there are times when spontaneous conversation can occur. It is disciplined, as in the regular times of the devotions, but certainly not restricted to that. It's both spontaneous and it's disciplined. It's not a case of uh, perhaps you have a son or a daughter or a spouse or loved one, and you say to them, uh, not now, I already talked to you this morning, right? You have to wait till tomorrow morning. No, it's something spontaneous. Prayer is something where we continually are before God. Prayer involves the mind, the emotions, and the will. It involves our mind in that it's, there are conscious, disciplined thoughts and words. It's not senseless babbling. If you're gonna, about to see some, meet somebody important, let's say the, uh, the president of China, he was just in town um, visiting. If you're going to see somebody just who, who's that significant, you don't go up there and just start babbling. You think of what you're going to say and you frame your words carefully. As we approach the Almighty God of the universe, we engage our mind in that way so that we are coming to him with thoughts that make sense, with thoughts that have purpose and not just the babbling. It involves our emotions. There's feeling behind our praise and petitions. Not an emotionless, like like a husband that tells his wife, yeah, I love you. Uh, Is there feeling there? Uh, could you get, just give it a little bit more? No, come on. There's something there. There's something that means there. Yes, it involves our emotions. On the other hand, it doesn't go to the extreme and it's only emotion. What good is that? Just an expression of an emotion. It's kind of like, kind of like taking the fizz after you pour a Coke, taking the fizz off the, the bubbles off the top. Not much there, not much substance. That's prayer with only emotion. It also involves the will. This is the hard one. Choosing to submit. Quite frankly, I wonder how many of our prayers 
are simply expressions of our own will. During these moments in the garden, Jesus, through example, had the opportunity to teach his disciples and us about the role of will in our prayers. We don't deny having a will, nor do we seek to eliminate our will. God created us with one. Instead, we seek to align our will with the will of God. Jesus said, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Mark adds the word Abba, as in a very close relationship with his father. And he's saying, if you are willing, if there is any other way, remove this cup. Remember the context. Jesus was facing God's wrath. Can I say this? I don't believe that we are called to pray this specific prayer because we don't face God's wrath as Jesus was about to. He didn't say pray like this. The, the cup of God's wrath was for Jesus. He took it for us. The cup signifies God's wrath poured out on sinful mankind and Jesus took that for us on the cross. 1 Thessalonians 5.9 God has not, give, has not destined us for wrath but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. We will not face God's wrath because of Christ's substitution. Isn't that great? This isn't our prayer. This is his. Jesus took on himself the sin of the whole world when he hung on the cross. God And God in his holiness, not his rejection, turned away. That's what Jesus feared. However, we can pray our own expression of our humanity, which quite frankly at times might be a plea for the heaviness of sorrow or suffering to be lifted. I have found in my own experience that these heartfelt prayers often have less to do with circumstances and more to do with loved ones. If it prayed like that, if it be possible, can this cup? Have you ever held one of your children and felt so helpless because you couldn't make the sickness go away? In fact, I think that point of coming to a place where we feel helpless, that's a good thing for us. That often is what pushes us towards God and say, God, please. Some of us are, stu- are, are too stubborn to get there. We're going to fix things on our own. And God breaks down our pride and says, I, I can take care of that if you let me. But sometimes that heaviness and that sorrow, we come to him and say, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. When we look at Jesus' anguish in the garden, I don't think there's any single cause for him praying this. You look at, at what he was about to face, the abandonment, the disciples leaving him, the humiliation of the trial. You look at the painful death that he was about to face, the temptation of the enemy, the weight of sin. So this cry was an expression of his humanity. And then part two of that, where he said, first, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. This is a prayer of complete honesty and surrender. It is so far opposite, typically, of what we humans go about as far as deception and demand. We learn, unfortunately, in our humanness, that's the way to get things. Deception and demand. And this prayer is one of honesty and surrender. It's not praying God into accordance with my will. And I keep praying for God to do and fill in the blank. But he doesn't answer. Um, I need more faith. Or and somehow we think that we, we have to oppose his will. 
You know, kind of, kind of make our will stronger than his. Hello? You're going to lose that one. Okay? We can't. We come into line with what his will is. In order to seek God's will, mine must be brought into submission. I don't eliminate it. It's still there, but it must be brought into submission to God's will. See, taking all of John 14 through 17 and understanding and appropriating what abiding means, that deep, intimate, consistent fellowship with God through Christ, that I know God's will as I pray it. Let me ask you this. Could it be that many of our prayers are empty words or wasted breath, sometimes because we ask with the wrong motives, John, uh, James chapter 4? Could it be that many of our prayers are empty words or wasted breath because we fail to ask in his name, John 16:23, or fail to do the work of the Father, John 14:14? 14, 14? Could it be that many of our prayers are empty words and wasted breath because we desire not the will of our Father, but our own? In the context, the disciples heard Jesus' word in the garden, our passage, these few verses, but they heard in the context of John 14 through 17. And these words drew their attention to the Holy Spirit in chapter 14, chapter 15, abiding in the vine, chapter 16, praying in the name of Jesus, and chapter 17, glorifying God. That's the context. They understood, or at least they were beginning to, that it was only through the presence and power of the Holy Spirit that complete dependence on the true vine and the pure motive of glorifying God that our prayers are answered. For us to pray expectantly and with confidence, as in John 14, 14, we must be walking in obedience. Folks, this is what we miss the most. We think we can just offer those prayers up and throw those promises around and say, God, you said you would do it, and God says, have you been walking in obedience to me? Well, that's, yeah, I'll work on that later. No. We want to know, we want God's will, we want to follow him. He expects us to be walking closely with him. Let me read that, John 14, uh, verses 12 through 14. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Too often we just grab that one verse, verse 14, out of context and say, See, you said you would do it. We're missing some things there. For one, you look at the, ver- at the previous verses and see what it says about works. That means we're following, we're being obedient, we're doing what God wants us to do. Secondly, in the name. We ask in, in his name. We don't have time to spend on this, but I'll tell you when, you, when you claim the name of Jesus, that's significant. When you come in someone else's name, that's huge. When we come in the name of Jesus, then he's hearing us. And about these prayer promises, author Andrew Murray writes this in his book, With Christ in the School of Prayer. Listen to this. How many a believer has read over these, meaning the verses I just read, with joy and hope and in deep earnestness of soul has sought to plead for his own need and come away disappointed. Simple reason was this. He has torn the promise away from its surrounding context. This promise was given in connection with the doing of his works. 
that make sense? You can't just grab that verse 14. If you do ask anything in my name, I will do it. Out of the context. It has to do with doing the work of the Master. Then we can ask anything in his name and he will do it. It is the disciple who gives himself wholly to live for Jesus' work and kingdom, for his will and honor, to whom the power will come to appropriate that promise. And Murray further writes this, He who tries to grasp the promise when he wants something for himself will be disappointed because he would make Jesus the servant of his own comfort. Santa Claus Jesus. No. That's not why we go to him. We find out his will and then we say, what part do you want me to have in that? That's not human nature, folks. That's not me. I have a will, and it's a strong one. My family will attest to that. But what, ha- what's, what matters is my own submission, willing submission to his will. Then I can pray, thy will be done. When we know the Father, I'm sorry, when we, we, when we know the will of the Father, we can pray the will of the Father. Quite frankly, too many of us fail to take the time to know our Heavenly Father. And often, that's what hinders us in our prayers. Isn't it true that, that the, the better you know someone, the more you kind of predict what they're going to do or say in a certain situation? That's one of the, that's one of the good memories I have from, from when my dad was alive. Was just He and I would spend so much time together. We'd be in the workshop. Uh, would be out fishing. I could pretty much, if we were in a situation, I knew what he was going to say and do because we had spent all that time together. And you, those of you who are children, perhaps, in here, uh, sitting next to your parents, uh, there's a few in here. Think of that. Think of that when you, when you ask your mom and dad, can, can I do this? Can I stay over here? Um, can I watch this show? Um, can I borrow the car? Most of the time, you can pretty much predict what your parents are going to say, Right? No, oh, come on, I, I heard those notes. But, but you know your parents well. That's why you know what they want. How well do we know our Heavenly Father? And too often we just cry, I don't know your will, because we don't know Him. Jesus knew His Father. That's why He could say, not my will, but yours be done. This is, a, this is an ongoing prayer. May it not last just the month of January, Lord, teach us to pray. Agonizing in prayer is hard work. It means carving out a time and place and addressing a significant issue with God while choosing to submit to his will and trusting him as opposed to attempting to manipulate people or circumstances into the outcome or answer we think he ought to give. That's a, that's a long sentence. Let me say this again because this is significant. Agonizing in prayer is hard, hard work. It means carving out a time and a place and addressing a significant issue with God while choosing at the same time to submit to his will and trusting him as opposed to attempting to manipulate people or circumstances into the outcome or answer we think he ought to give. It takes time. It takes submission. It takes a giving up of our own will. Some here today probably have encountered one or more deeply distressing crises or even 
maybe even during one now. What, are, what matters is not our ability to avoid such crises or even necessarily pray them away. What matters is that we become accustomed, so accustomed, to deep daily fellowship with God that when an event rolls over us, we instinctively know God's will from having spent time with him. And you look and you say, well, that's impossible. Well, no, it isn't. Look at John chapter 15. Read John chapter 15. Abide in me. He says, and we're supposed to do it. And we can. That's where it starts. Just think of this. As you think of the effects that a, a vibrant prayer life can have, not just individual. I'm not just talking about you and your own prayer closet. Yes, that's part of it. But think about it with our local church, with this body of believers. Think about it instead of going on and making this program and doing this and saying, Lord, bless this mess, sometimes saying, God, what is it that you want us to do? What is your will? Aligning our will with the will of the Father. Just think if we did that and did it on a consistent basis. And not just our our church here, just this local church. Think of the church universal. The church all over the world. Just think of how that would glorify God. Asking and finding out what His will is. Lord, not my will, but thine be done. Well, today, this afternoon, in fact, um, there'll be a football team on the field. Actually, there'll be two football teams. So Bears will be on the, team the, on the field and then some other team. And if you ever watched this, I don't know if you ever watched this or not, but before the game... After they come out of the locker room, they get together, and usually the leader or the captain of the team give up this little pep talk. And if you ever watch them, oh my goodness, you see this little huddle of guys, and by the time they're done with a little pep talk, they are ready not just to take on the Packers, but the entire state of Wisconsin. You ever seen that? Let me ask you this. What if we went through this for a few minutes, and then they said, Thanks, folks. That's all. And go back to the locker room. Hey, 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 what about this? Come on, you're all fired up. Aren't you going to do something about that? Aren't you going to go out there and win? That'd be a great disappointment. Let me ask you this. Could it be true that there are Sundays when we gather together with our brothers and sisters? We're inspired. We engage our mind, our will, and emotions. And then we go home without ever giving another thought until we come back next week for the next pep talk. Pep talk. Let me say this. Do something. We've had these messages on prayer. Do something. God is not silent. He spoke to you today. Did you hear him? More importantly, are you going to do anything about it? Reading from God's Word and hearing Jesus' prayer, that agonizing prayer, not my will, but yours be done, that can be ours as well. As the musicians come and we begin to prepare for our final song, I want to invite you. Perhaps there's some today that have a burden. Perhaps there's some today that say, I just want to pray. I also want to invite the prayer counselors to come down front as well.
And if you perhaps have something that God has laid on your heart, something where you would like a brother or a sister to come alongside of you and pray, please take advantage of this time. Please don't be shy about it. It's okay. Um, there'll be four down here front. There'll be two up there in the balcony. But we want you to take advantage of that. Just come alongside and say, could you pray with me? As we close, would you bow in prayer with me? Our Heavenly Father, we thank you. In saying this, Lord, we realize we have much to learn. Father, I pray that you will teach us. And I pray, Lord, as you are there, as you are speaking, and Lord, help us to have teachable hearts. May we not be so stubborn that we refuse and our will becomes our prayer instead of your will becoming our prayer. Thank you, Father, for gathering us here today. Thank you for each believer, each person that you brought. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.